You're listening to DNA ID, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, and Three Men and a Mystery. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Episode 32, Troy and LaDonna French. It was 2012, I know, much more recent than the vast majority of the crimes I've covered to date. At 2.12 a.m. on the morning of February 4th, a 911 call came into the Rockingham County, North Carolina Sheriff's Office. The cell phone caller, a woman, was hysterical, screaming and unintelligible. I'm going to play an excerpt. You might want to turn your volume down a little bit because the audio could be jarring. and shot your parents? Yes, yes. All right, hold on. You... Ma'am, we're going to get somebody to you. Confirm your address. 791 Pinewood Road. 791 Pinewood Road. Yes, ma'am. Ma'am, calm down. Calm down. Uh, the dispatcher's going to send you help, okay? Do you have Do you have any idea who it was? The caller was Whitley French, age 19. Somehow this dispatcher managed to discern what Whitley was saying. Someone broke in and shot her parents. She herself was shot in the arm, she said. You can tell from the audio that Whitley is terrified out of her mind. She can be heard begging her father to talk to her, to tell her what to do to help him. About six minutes into the call, following the cues of the dispatcher, Whitley performed CPR on her dad, who lay on the floor. He's not breathing anymore, she says breathlessly. His eyes are closed. He doesn't have a pulse. I'm giving him CPR. The operator asked her to check on her mother. Whitley cried, My mom, she's not making any noises. She's laying near the door, and I I don't want to go over there. When she finally was able to steal her nerves to scuttle over to her mother, she gasped to the dispatcher, I didn't know she was shot in the head. She's bleeding from her ears. Are they almost here? She asked the dispatcher. I'm really scared. Every deputy in the county is racing to you, the dispatcher tells her. It took the first first responder 16 minutes to get to Whitley's house, located at 791 Pinewood Road in a rural area about nine miles west of Reedsville. He happened to be somewhat close by. Others were not able to arrive at the French home for another nine minutes. Whitley stayed on the call the entire time as the dispatcher kept her talking until help arrived. 
When Deputy Colley arrived at 2.28 a.m., he could hear Whitley shrieking as she spoke to the 911 operator. On the recording, Whitley can be heard crying and blurting out to the deputy what happened. The deputy spoke to the dispatcher, saying, Go ahead and isolate that audio. We're going to need that. The deputy could tell the audio of the 911 call containing Whitley's statements was going to be important evidence later. Because what he and other first responders observed as soon as they walked into the house was that a fatal double shooting had gone down. Two people had been murdered, and investigators were going to have to piece together what happened. Eventually, the FBI was sent the audio to enhance it as much as possible. Let's get into it. You should know that in researching the facts of this case, I relied heavily on the thorough coverage in the Greensboro News and Record by Danielle Battaglia. Her detailed stories on the crime and the devastation it caused in the community are poignant, informative, and thoughtfully written. The French family lived in a nice home in the Bethany community west of Reedsville in Rockingham County, North Carolina. Their house was on the eastern corner of Pinewood and Brown Roads. It's a rural area filled with farmland, but the homes are a little more upscale. We aren't talking about rustic, weather-beaten barns and rickety silos as much as middle-class country homes far apart across verdant plots and groves of trees. Ironically, a road near the French home is named Troublesome Road, but the neighborhood had never seen anything like this before. When the 911 caller reported a shooting, all on-call deputies were summoned. They came from the North Carolina Highway Patrol, Rockingham County Sheriff's Office, Guilford County Sheriff's Office, and Rockingham County EMS. As I mentioned, North Carolina Highway Patrol Trooper Richard Colley was first on the scene after he heard the call about the shooting come across the police scanner. He was off-duty but was awake and near enough to the French home that he was first to arrive. He approached the side door leading to the house from the driveway. Whitley answered the door after he identified himself. She was still clutching her phone with the dispatcher on speaker. Blood was visible on the upper front left sleeve of her white shirt. Collie noticed the blood and that Whitley appeared to have an injury herself that was of indeterminate origin. Collie, standing at the side door, asked Whitley about what happened and if anyone was still in the house. As Whitley gasped out the story, Collie could see a pink pajama-clad woman lying face up on the floor in the foyer, jammed up against the front door. Her face was bloody and blood was dripping from her ears and he could see the legs of a man lying on his back on the floor between the living room and the kitchen, next to the center island. Collie approached the prone man and took over CPR, but it was quickly apparent that there was no saving him. This was when he told the dispatcher, still on Whitney's speakerphone, that two people were deceased. At 2.40 a.m., Rockingham County EMS took Whitley by ambulance to Annie Penn Hospital in downtown Reedsville. Deputies photographed her injuries there. She turned out to need two stitches to close a superficial cut on her upper left arm. She had a small abrasion on her chest. She had not been shot, and she had no other injuries. She was released before the end of the day on Saturday. The dead were identified as Troy and LaDonna French, Whitley's parents. I'm going to take a break from the story here to give a little background on the Frenches. LaDonna and Troy, whose real first name was Douglas, his middle name was Troy, were both from this area. They had met as young teens at Rockingham County High, where they were two grades apart. LaDonna was friends with Troy's younger sister, Lisa. Troy was an athlete, playing baseball and basketball and working long hours on his father's farm. LaDonna was tiny, a 5-foot-1-inch dynamo, a cheerleader and softball player who was super involved at school. Her maiden name was Mosley, and she had family all over this part of the state. 
Her grandparents had been large landowners and had generously doled out parcels to their descendants. Once Troy and LaDonna had established their family, in 1997, her parents gave them a parcel of 2.5 acres right across the street from their own home in Bethany. They built a house and moved in in 1998. They would die there 14 years later. Troy was dating someone else in high school, but the relationship was on the rocks, and he asked LaDonna, the girl's friend, to intervene. Pretty soon, the other girl was forgotten. Troy and LaDonna became inseparable his junior year and her freshman year. Even once he graduated and served in the Navy, they stayed together. LaDonna graduated and started classes at UNC Greensboro, but their wedding interrupted her plans to be a teacher. In 1985, they were married at the church right down Brown Road from where they ended up living, and they joined the congregation. They were God-fearing folk who attended church every Sunday and were beloved by the church community. I will say that their religious and personal views are considered somewhat dated. For years, they attended a fundamentalist church which embraced a literal interpretation of the Bible, including its tenets that women should be submissive to men. At the time of their deaths, Troy was 48. After serving in the Navy for 10 years, during which decade he and LaDonna had lived in Norfolk, Virginia, he had been employed by Duke Energy for 22 years. 45-year-old LaDonna worked at Shapiro Eye Care Clinic in Reedsville. They had been married 26 years. Whitley was born in 1992 and her baby brother Hunter five years later. The Frenches were devoted parents, committed to their kids and their family, attending all the sporting events and concerts that parents usually go to, and doing everything together. Troy built model NASCAR cars and loved the Tar Heels. LaDonna loved to shop and decorate. In short, they were the classic all-American family. They had no secrets and no drama. Their funeral was attended by hundreds, none of whom could imagine who would have wanted to kill them. They were buried on February 8th at the same place where they had been married, Sharon Baptist Church. As for their kids, Whitley had graduated high school and enrolled at ECU. While at Rockingham High, she was very active, playing basketball, volleyball, and soccer. She had lots of friends and was popular. She also had a boyfriend, whom we will discuss later. Hunter, Whitley's little brother, was your average 14-year-old boy. He was sporty and a Boy Scout. On the night of the shootings, Don and Nancy Mosley, LaDonna's parents, were asleep in their home. Their house was right across the street from the French's. Before 3 a.m., Don was awakened by blaring sirens and lights that came to a stop at the intersection just outside the house. At first, Don assumed it was a car accident. They were fairly common at this intersection of two dark rural roadways. But when he looked out the window, the sheer number of emergency vehicles and no evidence of any crashed vehicles made him question this. He threw on some clothes and went to his daughter and son-in-law's house to see what was going on. Cops stopped him at the perimeter and told him just that his granddaughter had been taken to the hospital. He headed up to Annie Penn. Troy's brother Craig French was awakened by a call from their sister Lisa French Moore. She told him there was a break-in and Troy had been shot. When Craig arrived at Troy's house, a deputy told him bluntly that the homeowners were dead. He headed up to Annie Penn Hospital where he met up with Lisa and her husband and Don Mosley and Anne French Fawcett, Troy, Craig, and Lisa's mom. They were all completely bewildered by the abrupt tragedy that had befallen their family. In fact, it was incomprehensible. After some discussion, Craig and Lisa and their significant others got in the car and drove two hours plus to Goldsboro. Hunter, Whitley's 14-year-old brother and LaDonna and Troy's son, was there on a swimming trip for Rockingham County High where he was a freshman. On almost any other night, he would have been home in bed when the tragedy struck. 
Troy and his mother Anne had been planning to drive to Goldsboro the next morning to watch Hunter's meet. Instead, Hunter was pulled out of his meet by his coach and told by his aunt and uncle that his parents had been killed. As for the community, this kind of crime was completely foreign. When I heard the call, it was unusual, Sheriff Sam Page noted. We don't have a lot of home invasions. I'm very concerned until someone is brought to justice. Neighbors were freaking out. They started locking their doors and dusting off their guns, thinking they might be next. If it happened to the Frenches, it could happen to anyone. The French home was very visible, located at a four-way intersection of well-traveled roads and not nestled among trees. A strange vehicle parked nearby would stand out, as would a middle-of-the-night pedestrian. The sheriff's office stepped up their patrols of the area and issued an official request for information, asking anyone who saw a vehicle or person near the French home around 2 a.m. on the night of the murders to contact the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office. Crime Stoppers established an anonymous tip line and a reward for information. Whitley was questioned at the hospital and again the day after her parents' funeral. Here is what Whitley told police happened on the night her parents died. Whitley had just arrived home from college at ECU for a weekend visit. It was the first time she'd been home since Christmas break. On Friday, February 3rd, when she arrived at home, she chatted with her parents. Then, while her dad made dinner, she popped across the street to say hi to her grandma, Nancy. Her dad called her and said dinner, her favorite Japanese dish, was ready. She went back home, they ate and caught up, and then went to a girls' and boys' basketball doubleheader at Rockingham County High School, Whitley's alma mater, and the school Hunter attended. After the game, they returned home and Whitley went upstairs to bed around 10.30. She got ready for bed and used her laptop to watch Netflix. College kids are always so excited for the comforts of home when they had been living in crowded dorms or some bleak apartment and Whitley fell asleep in her childhood bed. Around 1.30 a.m., she woke, used the bathroom, and turned off her laptop, which was still glowing. She went back to sleep, and then she woke abruptly. Someone had climbed onto her bed. It was pitch black in her room, so she could not see the person, but whoever it was, he was straddling her. This is literally my worst nightmare, and I can't imagine how absolutely terrified Whitley must have been. My first instinct would be to scream, and that's what Whitley did, loudly a scream that pierced the night until the intruder's hand slapped down over her mouth to quiet her. But Whitley's screams had wakened her parents, whose master bedroom was on the ground floor of the house. They started running toward the stairs leading to her room, located right at the top of the staircase. Hearing the footsteps and yells of the people downstairs, the suspect jumped off Whitley and ran toward the top of the stairs. Whitley ran after him, trying to get to the safety represented by her parents. But they weren't going to be able to help her. The intruder stood at the top of the stairs and pulled out a gun. Whitley was not sure whether the gun had been in his hand before or not, but she watched as he pointed it at her mother. I'm not clear on how many lights were on in the house at this point. It was truly the middle of the night, and everyone in the house had been asleep. I would guess that the lighting was extremely dim and visibility was limited, and all of this happened in a matter of seconds. But Whitley could see that LaDonna stood at the bottom of the steps, one leg on the lower step facing upward toward the suspect, starting to climb the stairs. The suspect took aim and fired multiple shots as he ran down the stairs. LaDonna had only a split second to react, throwing her hands up in front of her as the gun fired. The shots hit LaDonna in the wrist, then the hand, then the shoulder, then the chest and head. She fell back and hit the ground of the foyer hard, her head coming to rest against the front door, eyes open and staring. Meanwhile, Troy French, clad only in his boxers, had been behind his wife as they ran toward the foyer and staircase. 
He watched in wide-eyed horror as the shooter ran down the stairs, firing away, and LaDonna fell back. Whitley was frozen on the stairs. Before Troy could react, a bullet hit him in the chest. He turned and ran toward the kitchen, but he went down, felled by the shot to his sternum. The suspect gave chase and shot Troy in the back where he lay. Then he stopped and turned back toward Whitley. A silent moment passed, and then he darted back toward her, past her, and to the front door. It was locked, and LaDonna's 180-pound body lay up against it. He shoved her out of the way, turned the latch, and ran into the night. What a story. Of course, the first thing that Whitley was asked was whether she recognized the person who had shot her parents. No, she said, the person had a hood up. It was dark. She never got a good look at him. She had no idea who the person was or what they had been doing in the French's house. The description she provided was so vague as to be almost useless. Sheriff Page released a description of the suspect wanted in the French murders based on Whitley's recall. It was a person of unknown gender or race between five foot eight and five foot nine and weighing between 160 and 170 pounds. The person had an average build and wore a light gray hooded sweatshirt with green strings and green pants. Let's go back to the crime scene investigation. For obvious reasons, the county crime scene unit cordoned off the French property and house, and investigators started poring over them in excruciating detail. They had to try to determine from the physical evidence what the real circumstances of the shootings were, rather than just relying on Whitley's story. It's not that they didn't believe her, but they had to do their due diligence and independently verify her tale, which was a little outlandish of a stealthy hooded intruder who got into a locked house undetected, climbed onto her bed, murdered her parents, and disappeared into the night like a phantom. The whole scenario, to be honest, was somewhat doubtful. But they noted that Whitley's story told in interviews with investigators was consistent with the story she had told on the 911 call and when Deputy Collie arrived. If it was made up, she was good at not slipping up in her relation of the details. Rockingham County Sheriff's Detective Jason Joyce obtained a search warrant covering the entire home within four hours of the 911 call. They executed it at 6.19 a.m. They collected a pill, some keys, and four neckties, among other things. I could not get anyone in the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office to talk to me about this case. Both detectives who worked it have since retired. So some aspects of the story will have to remain speculative. One of the questions I had was, why did police collect the four neckties? And the only reason that makes any sense is if they had reason to believe the suspect had touched them. Perhaps they appeared to be disturbed, and investigators theorized the perp could have been planning to use them as ligatures. I'm just not sure. Anyway, Troy and LaDonna were left lying where they fell for 12 hours. Investigators wanted to be sure to capture the scene as close to as-is as possible. North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Special Agent Kelly Cummings and Rockingham County CSI Detective Bobby Richardson processed the scene. They could see that Troy and LaDonna had definitely been shot. There were bullet holes visible in both their bodies. And the door of the closet at the base of the staircase, right next to LaDonna's body, also bore some bullet holes. Remember, LaDonna was shot through the hand and wrist, and those bullets passed through. The initial searches of the home were intended to try to locate the gun, among other things. A second warrant, executed at 2.05 p.m., specifically addressed toward weapons, resulted in the seizure of eight spent cartridge casings, one lead bullet projectile, and four projectiles of an unspecified material, a partial projectile casing, two shotguns, two rifles, and some ammo. 
But it was the gun they did not find that caused the most concern. Because inside the home, investigators located an empty gun box and purchasing papers for a High Point 9mm semi-automatic handgun. The gun itself was nowhere to be found. Again, because the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office would not answer my questions, I have no idea where in the house the gun box was found. I assume it was in a cabinet or closet in the master bedroom, but that's a total guess. But anyway, inquiries of members of the French family provided some very perplexing information about this gun. Troy had told Nancy and Don, LaDonna's parents who lived across the street, that the gun had gone missing several weeks earlier. It was thought to have disappeared sometime in December of 2011, but he couldn't really be sure. He hadn't reported it, though. That was probably because he had found out that Hunter and a buddy had played with the gun without permission. After that was when he hid it. Yet it still vanished. Although his family urged him to report its theft, he didn't. And my theory is that he suspected the youths had taken it and he didn't want to get his son or his son's friend in trouble. Spoiler alert, Hunter and his buddy had not stolen the gun. Its disappearance was completely inexplicable. Pursuant to a third search warrant on the 15th, investigators collected some items that made it appear that they were looking close to home for answers in the double homicide. They seized LaDonna's purse and Troy's wallet, a thumb drive, a digital camera, an iPod and cell phone, and Whitley's laptop. They also collected fingerprints from Whitley, Hunter, and both deceased parents for comparison purposes. While the first searches were still going on, Sheriff Page addressed the throngs of media that had materialized outside the home. The rumored double homicide was big news in these parts, and reporters were eager for details. Page acknowledged that the Frenches were dead, murdered in a home invasion by an intruder who had not been apprehended. It was a very tragic situation we have here today, Page said. Page was personal friends with the Frenches, and he felt invested in their case. He read the loose description of the suspect and told reporters that the armed suspect had left the house on foot. Autopsies on Troy and LaDonna were conducted at Annie Penn Hospital Morgue. The bullet to LaDonna's head went into her right cheek and severed her spinal cord, causing hemorrhages at the base of her brain and skull. The bullet did not exit but was removed from inside her skull at autopsy. Stippling showed that this gunshot wound to her head was at quite close range. The shots to her shoulder, wrist, chest, and hand were all exiting gunshot wounds. As for Troy, the bullet to his chest traveled right and downward at a 45-degree angle, cutting through his left lung, heart, diaphragm, and liver before burrowing into his abdomen. The second bullet pierced the middle of his lower back and also traveled right and downward before exiting through his right hip. Neither wound exhibited stippling, meaning that the shots were not at close range. Both autopsies found that most of the gunshots were fired from a position above both Troy and LaDonna. So it appeared that Whitley was telling the truth about the vantage point of the shooter when doing the shooting. The shooter was on the stairs and shooting downward at his target, LaDonna. The shooting of Troy in the back was also consistent with what Whitley had said, that Troy was running away from the shooter. Now let's talk about the blood drops. One drop of blood was found on the stair railing close to the foyer near where the shooter would have been standing when he shot LaDonna. Four more drops were found on the stairs themselves. Investigators weren't certain who the blood belonged to. Remember, Whitley had a cut and had descended the staircase. Neither LaDonna nor Troy had made it onto the stairs. 
but someone else had used the stairs, according to Whitley, the shooter. No one knew why he would have been bleeding, but the drops were each swabbed and collected for testing. In the first minutes after the 911 call, as the all-hands-on-deck alert went out to multiple law enforcement agencies, a deputy spotted a man driving a silver extended cab Dodge pickup truck turning onto Sandy Cross Road from Iron Works Road, not far from the French's house. It was thought that the driver could have seen something or even been the shooter himself. Less than five minutes later, a second deputy spotted the truck turning onto Wentworth Street and pulled over the vehicle. The driver told him he was en route to his house in Reedsville from Logistics Control in Greensboro, where he worked. The man told deputies he had driven past the French's neighborhood, but he had seen no other cars on the road. He was allowed to leave, there being no reason to detain him. Investigators seized security camera footage from the McCollum's gas station, whose convenience store was a regular stop for locals. It was located about 10 minutes from the French home. They were interested in the footage between 10 and midnight on the night of the murders. Why, we don't know, other than perhaps they hoped that the surveillance cameras might have caught someone stopping for gas or supplies on their way to the French house. At the French house, deputies took the foyer closet door off its hinges and cut a bullet out of the bottom of the door where it was embedded on the wood. Now they could tell the type of weapon used. And they got a stroke of luck when they discussed the missing gun with Hunter. He said he did not take it after his dad found out that he and a friend had messed around with it. But before the gun disappeared, his dad had used it to shoot a possum in the yard. Following Hunter to the location on the property where the possum was shot, investigators found two shell casings still on the ground. They collected them and submitted them to the State Bureau of Investigation for firearm comparison testing. Sure enough, ballistics confirmed that the gun that had ejected the two shell casings found in the yard, which, according to Hunter, was his dad's missing 9mm handgun, was the same gun that had fired the shots at and into the Frenches, resulting in the eight casings found at the murder scene. Six months after the murders, the sheriff's office released this information to the public. But it just made no sense. The Frenches were killed with Troy's own gun which had been MIA since sometime the previous December. And it made investigators wonder whether the shooter was someone the Frenches knew, because it appeared that whoever used the gun to kill them had access to the house. Investigators were baffled by Whitley's story that, one, the house was locked on the night of the murders, and two, the shooter had appeared to know that the front door was locked, as he flipped the latch to unlock it before attempting to open it. And they learned from Whitley that the family kept a hideaway key outside, as many homeowners do. They guessed that it would be gone. But no, there the key was, hidden beneath the back deck right where Whitley said it usually was. The key was collected and tested for forensic evidence. It turned out to have touch DNA on it, from an unknown male unrelated to the French's. No match was found in CODIS to the DNA on the key. Rumors spread that the key had been picked up by some sheriff's deputy who was processing the scene without gloves on. If that were true, it would have been a huge mistake, one that possibly compromised the evidence. Speaking of mistakes, there was a clear mistake that was made by the Rockingham County authorities. The shooting had taken place in the wee hours of Saturday morning. Investigators conducted the searches we've discussed, took photos, documented what they needed, and then released the home to the family at 10 o'clock on Saturday evening. The Mosley relatives and four friends pitched in to remove every trace of the crime so that Whitley and Hunter would not have to see anything when they returned home.
They scrubbed the blood off the walls and floors, wiped up all the fingerprint dust, and burned the wood closet door that bore the marks memorializing the bullet trajectory. When crime scene techs returned days later to take another look at the door, there was nothing left. The day after the French's funeral, investigators started in-depth interviews of the family and friends of the slain couple. They collected DNA samples from family and from people who were regular visitors to the French house. Whitley worked with investigators, answering their questions on February 9th as best she could, and even returning to the home with them to reenact the murder on the 10th. The long sleeve shirt she was wearing that night was submitted for testing. Investigators kept an eye on the injuries she sustained that night and documented their healing in photographs. She eventually would be interviewed at least five times over the next couple of years. A week after the murders, with the community on edge and the sheriff's office inundated with calls from concerned citizens, the RCSO issued a news release. It read, It has come to our attention here at the sheriff's office that many rumors have surfaced regarding the French homicides in the past few days. At this point in time, there have been no arrests made in connection with the French homicides, though our investigative team continues to work tirelessly toward that end. As further information develops pertaining to this case, it will be released without delay. The release went on to say, quoting Sheriff Page, My investigative team needs time to examine all elements of this case. This is too important to risk any mistakes by rushing. I would ask the citizens and the media to be patient with us, as we continue to investigate this tragedy and seek the person or persons responsible. The public frustration was understandable because on March 14th, RCSO officials acknowledged that they did not have a person of interest in the case. The sheriff's office stated that they were working in conjunction with the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation, or SBI, the FBI, the Rockingham County District Attorney's Office, and the Greensboro Police Department to solve the crime. Community members thought that with all that firepower, they should be able to make an arrest very quickly. But it was not to be. Five months after the shootings, on June 17th, Whitley posted on her Facebook page, Happy Father's Day to the best dad. You have been missed today and every day. Shortly after LaDonna and Troy were killed, their families started a Facebook page in their memory called Blue Hope. It encouraged everyone to wear Carolina blue ribbons. The Frenches were big Tar Heels fans or tie a blue ribbon to a tree until justice was served. Blue ribbons adorned trees, poles, doors, and signposts in the area for the next few years. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. I know, because I thought it too. Whitley's parents were dead, and she survived with minimal injury and was able to call for help. And she related a kind of dubious tale about what had happened. All of us cynical true crime folks have heard of too many cases in which angry, rebellious, covetous teenagers murder their parents and try to cover it up. And insidious rumors started snaking through the Rockingham community, in part because of the number of searches of the home and the intensive questioning Whitley was being subjected to. But mostly because there were whispers about Whitley's boyfriend and that LaDonna and Troy had not approved of the romance. Let's take a look at Whitley's relationship with John Alvarez. Whitley began dating John Alvarez at least two years before her parents were killed. Reportedly, they posted about their relationship status for the first time way back in 2010. They had met at Rockingham High School, where John was a year ahead of Whitley. And John's best friend, C.J. Banner, lived across the street from the Frenches, so John spent a lot of time in Whitley's neck of the woods. John himself grew up one of the four sons of Jose Sr. and Elaine Alvarez, who ran a landscaping company and raised their family in Stokesdale, nine miles from the French's house. 
There are reports that LaDonna and Troy didn't approve of Whitley dating John, or at least they felt that the couple moved too fast. Also, John was of a different religion than the French's, and Whitley's parents were not thrilled about this. And Whitley and John began to look like they were in it for the long haul. LaDonna and Troy had hoped that Whitley would matriculate at the University of North Carolina when she graduated, but when John graduated first and moved to Greensville to study geology at East Carolina University, Whitley announced that when she graduated the following year, she would head to ECU as well. Her parents were not happy. They reportedly felt frustrated that Whitley was altering her life course for this boyfriend and they did not want her ending up with him. Reportedly, there were arguments about Whitley's decision and about the relationship overall. After Whitley graduated, she was waitlisted at ECU until the spring of 2012 semester. She started taking classes at Rockingham Community College to build up credits for ECU. When it came time for the move to Greensville in January of 2012, LaDonna and Troy resigned themselves to Whitley's decision and helped her move into her new apartment and paid her tuition. John Alvarez had already been at ECU for 18 months and was living in some off-campus housing with some buddies. But privately, LaDonna told family members that she and Troy were considering cutting Whitley off and making her pay for her own college and apartment because they did not approve of her choices. Because not only had Whitley insisted on following her boyfriend to college, she was starting to talk about marrying him. It was just about a month after Whitley moved into her new apartment and started taking classes at ECU that she came home for a weekend visit with her parents. And the very first night of that visit, they were killed. You can imagine what ran through the minds of investigators when they discovered that Whitley and her parents were seemingly at an impasse and Whitley was facing the possibility of being cut off financially. Perhaps, they theorized, she had come home for that weekend to hash it out with her parents once and for all. Nancy, LaDonna's mom, who was close to Whitley and saw her the evening of the shooting, told investigators that Whitley had told her she planned to settle things with her parents that very night. Investigators thought perhaps things had not gone Whitley's way, and perhaps Whitley, or someone she was in cahoots with, took matters in their own hands to get rid of Troy and LaDonna and the obstacles they presented to Whitley's independence once and for all. This was why investigators initially put Whitley directly in their crosshairs. She had motive, means, and opportunity. After all, they only had her word for it that there was an intruder that night. No doors or windows were found unlocked. Whitley could barely give them a coherent description of her attacker. She had sustained virtually no injuries. Hunter was conveniently not at home that night. And she had a beef with her parents and a trust fund. But Whitley told investigators that stories about her being at loggerheads with her parents were exaggerated. She said that six months before they died, they had started to come around to her plans to follow John to ECU. LaDonna helped outfit Whitley's new apartment, and she and Troy bought tees and sweatshirts at the ECU bookstore. But more than Whitley's word for it, there was some evidence that backed Whitley's original story up. Remember the five blood drops that crime scene techs had collected from the stairs in the French home? Well, this was 2012. In the old days before DNA, the police probably would have been very suspicious that Whitley herself had dripped this blood from the cut on her arm as she stood on the stairs shooting her parents. But after the shooting, they got a blood sample from Whitley and tested it against the blood on the stairs. The drops all belonged to the same person, not Whitley. The blood came from someone unknown to investigators. Whitley was telling the truth about the shooter being someone else. Sheriff Page held his second of three press conferences in this case in October 2012 and announced, quote, 
Based on evidence collected at the French's home and analysis by the North Carolina State Crime Lab, it has been determined that a male homicide suspect left his DNA samples at the crime scene. The killer was a man. Six months of swirling rumors about Whitley's involvement had done their damage, though. She stopped speaking to the media entirely, stopped posting on social media, stopped watching the news. The innuendos about her were just too pointed and painful. So Whitley was not the shooter, but there was a concerning discrepancy between the story Whitley told investigators and what they found once they got a search warrant for her phone and social media accounts. Her cell phone had been used at 1.25 a.m. on the night of the shootings, its signal bouncing off a cell tower seven miles from the house. Digital forensic analysts noted that she had also posted on social media at that time. Remember, she had said she watched Netflix on her computer. She never mentioned anything about being on her phone. After the 1.25 p.m. usage, her phone was powered off. So if the shooter wasn't Whitley, then who? Well, as far as anyone knew, there was one man who could have had access to the home, both to steal Troy's gun and to get into the locked house on the night of the murders, perhaps with inside help. Of course, I'm talking about Whitley's boyfriend, John. Investigators learned that not only did Whitley's parents not approve of the relationship, John's parents didn't either. Reportedly, they did not care for Whitley. The blood drops in the home were male. Perhaps John and Whitley had worked together to eliminate her parents. She let him in and he did the shooting. Whitley let it be known that she supported John and that she believed him not to be involved. She was quoted as saying, I hate it for John because I know he didn't do it, and people are saying really bad stuff about him. He's a good person. Investigators asked for a DNA sample from John Alvarez early on. He was one of several men who were asked to give samples for comparison to the blood drop DNA from which a complete male profile had been produced. In fact, any person whom investigators learned had ever been inside the French home was asked to give a voluntary DNA sample. None of them were a match, including John Alvarez. He was not the shooter. As I mentioned, Sheriff Page held a second press conference on October 30, 2012, to update the public on the investigation. And there was lots to address. This was the venue in which the sheriff acknowledged that the Frenches had been shot with Troy's own missing gun. He also acknowledged that the gun had never been located. Sheriff Page made an interesting statement about the Sheriff's Department theory in the case. He said, quote, We feel the attack was directed toward Whitley and her mother and father. We do not feel it was a random act. What he meant was, they did not believe this was an arbitrary home invasion. At this point, the sheriff confirmed that the shooter was a man. They knew this for sure, he said, because they had recovered his DNA. This was from the blood drops, but he didn't address the source at the time. Page said that there were no matches to this DNA profile in CODIS, nor was there a match to the DNA on the house key. But the DNA from the drops had been used to eliminate potential suspects, including several family members. Among the people who had been eliminated, Page said, were Whitley, Hunter, and John Alvarez. He said, quote, This DNA evidence has helped to rule out those initially questioned in the case. Sheriff Page stated that he believed that the suspect lived in the area and might not come across as the type of person who would kill two people. But, he said, it was just a matter of time until the shooter was caught. We have DNA. You can run, but you can't hide from your DNA, he said. DNA is unique to you. It's just a matter of time. 
The officials reiterated their plea for tips, saying the shooter probably sustained an injury at the time of the shooting that might have been visible and probably showed the stolen gun to someone. But nothing panned out. By January of 2013, the case was officially cold. Sheriff Page penned a letter to lame duck Governor Bev Perdue. He wrote in the January 2, 2013 correspondence, quote, At this time, all available information that has been received by investigators has been followed up on and all leads have been exhausted. All evidence that has been collected in this case has been sent to the NCSBI crime lab and processed by them. No suspect has been identified by any of the leads or evidence that has been processed. The letter asked for a $5,000 reward, which was granted by Purdue's successor, Governor Pat McCrory, to be given to an informant whose tips led to arrest and conviction of the killer. It was advertised for the first time on January 22, 2013, and it generated some tips, but they all led nowhere. On the first anniversary of the murders on February 4, 2013, Rockingham County Sheriff's officials held another press conference. And this one proved very confusing because they retracted some of the statements made in the October 30, 2012 presser. If you recall, at that time, Sheriff Page said that Whitley and John, as well as Hunter, had been eliminated as suspects. Now, in February 2013, Captain Billy Parker said that was not the case. Asked about DNA, Parker said, quote, At this time, I can say no one has been eliminated as suspects in this case. We're continuing to look at everyone. He clarified that while neither Whitley's nor John's DNA matched that of the crime scene, no one had been ruled out as having involvement. He confirmed that there were no hits in CODIS. Sheriff Page came up to the mic and said that when he made his statements in October, he meant only that the DNA was not Whitley's or John's, not that they had been crossed off the suspect list altogether. It sounds to me as though Sheriff Page was comfortable eliminating John and Whitley from the suspect list, but others were not so sure. Let's talk about what happened with the French kids after Troy and LaDonna were killed. The family home was foreclosed on by the Federal Home Loan Mortgages Corporation. The house was sold to a private buyer in 2013. According to Danielle Battaglia's reporting, LaDonna and Troy French's will stipulated that Troy's sister Lisa Moore and her husband Todd Moore would get custody of Hunter, who was still a minor. Hunter tried out living with a few different family members and finally settled in with Troy's aunt and uncle, Faye and Carl Stone. He left Rockingham High and transferred to a private school in Greensboro. As for Whitley, she never wanted to spend another night in the home where her parents had died. She moved in with her dad's mom, Anne French Fawcett, and then eventually returned to ECU. Both kids would inherit their trust funds when they attained the age of 25. In May of 2015, Whitley and John tied the knot. The couple had weathered the tragedy that befell her family and continued to ignore their relatives who disapproved of the union. The wedding was at Summerfield Farms, and photos show Whitley and John beaming in the gorgeous outdoor setting. Hunter escorted his older sister down the aisle. A minister from the conservative Reedsville Bible Chapel officiated. It was a formal affair, with Whitley in a traditional wedding gown, her bridesmaids in navy strapless dresses, and John and his groomsmen in light gray suits. Photos show everyone looking happy and having fun. But casting a pall on the whole event were the two empty seats Whitley had reserved in the front row, with photos of Troy and LaDonna on them. They would so have cherished seeing their only daughter walk down that aisle. 
Some people whispered that it wasn't appropriate for Whitley to have such an elaborate wedding with her parents' murders remaining unsolved, but she could not wait forever. For the investigation, which had now cycled through several lead detectives and outlived the career of one district attorney, showed no signs of progress. Binders of materials accumulated and thousands of man hours were expended. And a lot of DNA samples were collected and compared to the suspect sample. This from the Parabon case summary for the French case, quote, We swabbed a lot of people, says Captain Tammy Howell of the RCSO. Early on, if there was a remote chance someone could have been connected to the crime, we asked for a swab. In fact, in the first 12 months following the crime, over 50 subjects consented to provide a DNA sample. None of the samples matched the perpetrator. By the time the crime was solved, 65 DNA samples had been collected and tested. The Rockingham County authorities said that they collected samples from everyone they could think of who had access to the French home or property. This included some members of the Alvarez family, such as John and his mother Elaine. The crime lab ran each of those against the suspect sample to no avail. None matched. On the third anniversary of the murders, February 4, 2015, there was no progress to report. Whitley went ahead and got married. Behind the scenes, the French family was frustrated and fed up with the seeming lack of progress. They began to work to raise money for a more substantial reward, hoping that would jar loose some helpful tips. As they did so, the sheriff insisted that behind the scenes they continued to work the case. He said, quote, We are actively seeking out and investigating new leads in this case, and we will not give up until it is solved and arrests have been made. Well, he meant business. By August 2015, there was news. As we know, there was no match in CODIS or among family members or anyone else tested to the DNA extracted from the blood drops, which everyone believed came from the killer. No one knew how he would have cut himself, but possibly somehow he nicked himself with whatever blade he had used to cut Whitley's arm. The next step was to conduct partial DNA matching. North Carolina is not a familial DNA state. As you'll recall from my episode on Evelyn Derricott, which is Season 1, Episode 18, familial DNA searching is the process by which searches of the state's criminal DNA database look for close relatives of an unknown suspect based on similarities in their DNA. If a hit is obtained, the investigators know that their unknown suspect is related to the name in the criminal database. This can lead to the name of the killer once the known criminal's family tree is fleshed out. Partial DNA matching is largely the same thing, but is a more general term, at least the way it was utilized in this case. We know that the North Carolina State Crime Lab had already compared the suspect's DNA to 65 people looking for a direct match and found none. But then, in 2014, the RCSO sent the profile of the unknown suspect to the University of North Texas for Human Identification Lab to conduct a comparison to a specific DNA profile to see whether there was a familial relationship. And this DNA profile they sent was that of John Alvarez. Now, this is the step that would eventually solve the case, but I cannot tell you why the decision was made to compare the suspect's profile to John's. They already knew that the suspect was not John. Why did they believe it might be someone in his family? I can't tell you the answer because no one will tell me. This is all totally under wraps. But I have a theory or two. John was one of the few non-family males who were known to be in the French house on a regular basis. Remember, they believed that the killer had access to the house and the gun. 
It's possible that investigators remained suspicious of John and believed that he might have recruited a family member to help carry out the crime. They might have even believed he stole the gun and furnished the killer with it. This is all total speculation, but there was enough conviction among the authorities that John's sample would reveal something, that the testing was conducted at an out-of-state lab in contravention of the spirit of the familial DNA rules in North Carolina. Quoting here directly from the probable cause affidavit. On October 31, 2014, a forensic DNA lab report was received from the University of North Texas, concluding that based on the allele frequency data from U.S. Caucasian, African American, and Southwestern Hispanic populations, the observed genetic results are at least 4,600 times more likely under the scenario that the DNA profile represented originated from an individual who is a parent or offspring of John Alvarez, as opposed to this DNA profile originating from an unrelated individual. Sheesh, that's all a little tough to understand, but what it means is that the unknown suspect who dripped blood at the French crime scene was someone closely related to John Alvarez, as shown by a partial match in their DNA. So, whatever investigative theory had led to the partial match testing had been correct. Someone John was related to was the killer. A YSTR test was next. This test compares the short tandem repeats in the male chromosome of both samples to determine whether the two samples are related along the paternal line, and if so, how closely. The University of North Texas lab compared John Alvarez's DNA sample to that of the killer using YSTR analysis, and the results showed that the comparison did not support a parent-child relationship, nor did it support a full sibling relationship. In other words, per Parabon's case summary, the YSTR test determined that the perpetrator did not share a YSTR lineage with John Alvarez. This ruled out anyone who shared paternal lineage with John. Yet, the tests showed that the unknown suspect's DNA profile originated from a second-order relative of John Alvarez. This is someone like a grandparent, uncle, cousin, or half-sibling. They now knew that this second-order relative had to be related to John through his mother. Now, you'll note that this was all happening in 2015. Golden State and the acknowledged use of forensic genealogy in criminal investigations was still years off. But even this early, Parabon was using its phenotyping technology to determine ancestry and physical traits corresponding to DNA samples. In February of 2015, Captain Tammy Howell of the RCSO contracted with Parabon, paying the Reston Virginia Company $3,500 for a snapshot analysis of the DNA of the French suspect. It was hoped, I believe, that Parabon's ability to determine the suspect's race and specific admixture would assist investigators in honing in on who he was. And Parabon's report caused quite a stir behind the scenes. This from the Parabon case summary, quote, The subject's DNA indicated he had fair or very fair skin, brown or hazel eyes, dark hair, and little evidence of freckling. Face morphology analysis suggested the subject had a wide facial structure and non-protruding nose and chin. Importantly, Snapchat analysis indicated the subject had admixed ancestry, a roughly 50-50 combination of European and Latino ancestry, consistent with that observed in individuals with one European and one Latino parent. Specifically, the suspect had roots in Colombia, South America, Mexico, 
and Western European countries, including Spain. But it was the phenotype image that was produced by Parabon that caused detectives to sit up in their seats. The detectives noticed that the image looked an awful lot like someone in John's family. Based on the YSTR analysis conducted by the University of North Texas, Parabon knew that the suspect was related along the maternal line to John Alvarez. The suspect was not related to Jose Alvarez Sr., John's dad. So the suspect must be an uncle, grandfather, or nephew of Elaine, John's mom, or a son of hers that was not fathered by Jose Sr. RCSO detective Marcus Marshall had a theory. He said, quote, The snapshot ancestry analysis and phenotype predictions suggested we should not eliminate this person as a suspect, despite the YSTR results. The likeness of the snapshot composite with his driver's license photograph is quite striking. It was time to obtain more samples. On May 11, 2015, Detective Marshall and Detective Ed Smeldone went to the Alvarez family home on Friddle Road in Stokesdale and asked for and received buckle swabs from both Jose Alvarez Sr. and John's older brother, Jose Alvarez Jr. They already knew, remember, that Jose Sr. was not the perpetrator because the killer was related to John but not related to John along his father's side of the family. The DNA swab from Jose Sr. confirmed that he was John's dad. He was not a match to the suspect, and he was eliminated. But the other person who gave a DNA sample that day was not eliminated. In fact, he was a match. His DNA showed that he was not related to John along the paternal line, as he was not related to Jose Sr. at all. But he was related to John. He was a half-sibling. And Jose Sr. was not his father, which was unfortunate because he was his namesake. Jose Silvano Alvarez, Jr. On June 9, 2015, the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation Crime Lab issued a report that summed up the shocking results. All five of the blood drops found on the staircase in the French home belonged to Jose Alvarez, Jr. The DNA at the crime scene was one in 2.05 thousand trillion times more likely to be DNA of Jose Alvarez, Jr., than someone else when compared to the Caucasian population. The numbers were equally definitive when it came to the African-American and Hispanic populations. They were one in 74.9 thousand trillion and one in 209 thousand trillion, respectively. It was him. Whitley's brother-in-law had killed her parents. On August 25, 2015, with a warrant out for his arrest, Jose Alvarez Jr. turned himself in to the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office. Sheriff Page held a press conference announcing the news. He said, quote, Three years ago, I made a promise to the families of Troy and LaDonna French that the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office would not stop until an arrest was made in connection with the murder of their loved one. Today, we made good on that promise. Sheriff Page would not answer questions as to whether Alvarez had acted alone and District Attorney Craig Blitzer would not address investigators' theory of the crime or speak to motive. We have not developed a motive at this time, he said. I don't need a motive to prosecute Mr. Alvarez. Of course, this was true, but everybody wanted to know why. Before the press conference on the afternoon of August 25th, deputies were dispatched all over eastern North Carolina to inform the far-flung members of the French and Mosley families that they had made an arrest. After three and a half years, it was a shock. But worse, the killer was a family member. Whitley and John received a knock on their door in Greenville. It's hard to imagine how quickly their relation must have turned to dismay at hearing who the killer was. 
John learned in one fell swoop that his older brother was only his half-brother, and he was a murderer. Whitley learned that her husband's brother had taken the lives of her parents. Alvarez was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. At his bail hearing on August 26th, the Alvarez family was in attendance. And so were many members of the French and Mosley families, because now, with Whitley and John married, the families intersected. Whitley and John chose not to attend. When Alvarez was led in in shackles and a prison jumpsuit, there were tears from most of those present, particularly Jose Sr., the family patriarch. As he cried, members of the victim's families consoled him. The suspect did not make eye contact with anyone, keeping them firmly affixed on the ground beneath his feet. Rockingham County District Judge Tony Grogan stated simply, You are charged with first-degree murder in the deaths of Troy and LaDonna French. These charges come with a maximum sentence of death or life in prison. Judge Grogan granted prosecutors' requests to hold Alvarez without bail. He was remanded to the Rockingham County Jail. Not everyone at the hearing was so forgiving toward the suspect. Craig French began to shake uncontrollably as he watched the man accused of killing his older brother, Troy. He said, quote, I tried to stop shaking, but I couldn't because I wanted to go after him. It was the hardest thing in this whole world other than losing my brother. But Jose Alvarez Sr. approached the French family and profusely and tearfully apologized for his son's actions. There were hugs all around, and everyone tried to make sense of the turn of events that once again connected the two families, this time via a double homicide. Alvarez was indicted on September 8th. Prosecutors stated that they were considering seeking the death penalty. This seems like it was smoke and mirrors a little bit, since no executions have been carried out in North Carolina since 2006, when legislators there put a moratorium on executions after several lawsuits in the state challenged the processes relating to and manner of carrying out the death penalty. Nonetheless, capital punishment is still legal in the state for murders with aggravating circumstances and can be used as a bargaining chip to encourage criminal defendants to enter into plea agreements and render confessions. We don't know an awful lot about Jose Alvarez Jr. He was born on February 23, 1987. He grew up living in Rockingham County and graduated from Rockingham High, the same school Whitley and John later attended. The guidance counselor, who happened to be Whitley's grandma, Anne, didn't remember him. Not many people seemed to notice him at all. He flew under the radar, quiet and unremarkable. According to the news and record, he had no criminal record or history of violence. He lived at home for 28 years, residing with his parents and working in their landscaping business. But he moved to Greensboro one week after his DNA swab was taken. While living there, he participated in his brother's wedding, serving as a groomsman, all while harboring the dark secret that he was the reason why the bride's parents were present only in photographs. I have to wonder whether he had a sense of doom hanging over him throughout that joyful and momentous day. He's visible in wedding photos, smiling and laughing. He would be arrested a few short weeks later. When he was, he denied ever having set foot in the French home. Alvarez had an excellent attorney, Winston-Salem-based assistant capital defender Vincent Rabel. Rabel was a consummate professional who worked side-by-side with District Attorney Craig Blitzer to handle this case with dignity and decorum. Blitzer and Rabel agreed to postpone any decisions about the death penalty until both sides could complete all their due diligence. Eventually, with Alvarez's acquiescence, they decided on a plea deal that would spare him the death penalty. I reviewed the plea agreement, which was a strangely impersonal check-the-box type form. 
Alvarez's name is typed in under the preprinted State versus header. Typed X's mark the boxes where Alvarez acknowledged that he understood the charges against him, had received the advice of counsel, and was, in fact, guilty. He recognized that the maximum penalty, typed in under total maximum punishment, was death. The plea arrangement language was short and sweet, quote, The defendant shall be sentenced to life without parole upon his pleas of guilty to each count. In return, the state agrees not to pursue a capital sentence in each case. The state agrees not to pursue or charge any other offenses arising from the defendant's activities at the residence of Douglas Troy French and LaDonna Mosley French. The form was signed by all parties, Alvarez, his attorney Vincent Rabel, Prosecutor Craig Blitzer, and Judge Wilson, on July 8, 2016. At a July 7th hearing on the plea agreement and sentencing, Rabel asked the Rockingham County Superior Court to accept the plea agreement. He addressed the court discussing his client and why he deserved to be spared the death penalty. He acknowledged that there was overwhelming DNA evidence from the blood drops connecting his client to the murders. It could not be denied that the blood drops were left by the shooter, he acknowledged. And he said his client had acknowledged his guilt. He told the court he had hired an expert to undertake a psychological evaluation of Alvarez. Dr. Coleman spent hundreds of hours with Alvarez. This evaluation was partially intended to determine whether Alvarez could plead insanity. Rabel said that he had considered self-defense, mental disability, and insanity as defenses to the capital murder charges. But in the end, Alvarez wasn't crazy or suffering from any kind of incapacity, and the evidence against him was incontrovertible. Rabel did his best to try to make Alvarez out to be a little bit of a victim. He was pushing to get the two life sentences called for by the plea agreement to be served concurrently rather than consecutively. He said mitigating circumstances called for the judge to exercise his discretion in favor of concurrency. Rabel said his client was born with the cord around his neck and he had suffered at least one concussion playing baseball and had even lost the time once. He came from a religious and supportive family but could not focus on his college classes at NC State and dropped out. Dr. Coleman observed that Alvarez was increasingly isolated, a loner with few friends, and an increasingly dominant fantasy life. She diagnosed him with severe anxiety disorder. She said that he functioned at a teenage level, not someone pushing his 30s. He was emotionally and financially dependent on his parents. At the end, Rabel emphasized that Alvarez had no criminal record. District Attorney Craig Blitzer was not going to give an inch. Alvarez, he said, did not deserve any leniency. He didn't own up to the crime. He got caught after great time and expense was expended on the case. Even after he was brought into the station, he denied it all. When he took a polygraph, he still denied it. And even after they arrested him, he didn't accept responsibility. He hid all the evidence by discarding it. And he premeditated the murders when he put the knife away and grabbed the gun. Blitzer asked the court to hand down consecutive sentences in case subsequent changes in the law abbreviated Alvarez's sentence for some reason, opening him up for parole. Some of the French and Mosley family members were permitted to address the court at this time. Jordan Hayes, LaDonna French's nephew who was very close with Hunter, had some harsh words for Alvarez. He said that the family had been destroyed by what happened. Speaking directly to the prisoner, he said, quote, I'm glad they're not giving you the death penalty. I'm glad you're going to rot in jail. I hope you rot in hell. Jordan Hayes' mother, Kathy, is LaDonna French's sister. Her family lived right next to the French house, and the two sisters were extremely close. 
She said to Alvarez, quote, You have destroyed our family. I live right by their home and I drive by there and their grave sites every day. She talked about how Whitley had missed observing so many milestones with her parents, taken away from her and Hunter by Alvarez. Kathy also said that it was because of him that the community blamed Whitley and John. You have made your own family suffer, she said. I love your parents and brother, but you have broken their hearts. Craig French, so angered by the murder of his brother, said he had thought constantly about ways of killing Alvarez. But now, he said, he was able to forgive. This feeling was echoed by Anne French, Troy's mom. We are thankful that the French family is free from anger, hatred, and all that could hold us bound in this horrible state, she said in court. Know that you are forgiven. Alvarez was permitted to make a statement in court. I do regret what happened, he said. If I could take it back, I would. If I could change something, I would. All I could say is, I'm sorry, that's all. Judge Ed Wilson was inclined to accept the plea agreement, saying that it allowed the family to avoid a trial and possible appeals, and perhaps to begin putting it all behind them. He sentenced Alvarez to two consecutive life terms in prison without an opportunity for parole. You will die in prison, Judge Wilson told him. Alvarez is now serving out his sentence at Central Prison in Raleigh. Full disclosure by Jose Alvarez Jr. of what exactly went down on the night of the shooting was one of the requirements of the plea agreement. Everybody wanted to know how the heck did all this happen? Why was Alvarez in the French home that night? How did he get Troy's gun? Why did he kill LaDonna and Troy? And why didn't Whitley recognize him when he climbed onto her bed? Remember, Whitley's description of the suspect was about 5 foot 8. Alvarez is about 5 foot 3. She said he was 160 to 170 pounds. He is diminutive and thin, 140 on a good day. This is a good illustration about exactly how unreliable eyewitness accounts can be. Whitley knew him, and in the dark, chaotic, and fleeting incident, she failed to recognize him. And he took on much larger proportions in her mind than in reality. Fear can do that to a person. But there was another reason she failed to recognize her boyfriend's brother. He was wearing a mask. She never saw his face, but she didn't know why she never saw his face, so she never told the police that the intruder was wearing a mask. So what was Alvarez's connection to the French family, and why was he in their home creeping around in the middle of the night wearing a mask? Of course, his brother was dating Whitley, but Alvarez was four years older than John, and his being his brother would not necessarily mean that he was known to or familiar with the Frenches. However, Reedsville is a small community of just 15,000 where many of the families know each other, whether from church, school, or community involvement. And investigators found that Alvarez had been hired by Nancy, Troy's mom, to care for her rose bushes. This was at the house across the street from the French's. She told the news and record, quote, he was as nice as he could be and quiet. Nancy and her husband Don had become friends with Alvarez's mom Elaine after the murders. She stopped by to express her condolences and they hit it off. Of course, this was years before any of them knew that her son was Troy and LaDonna's killer. The Alvarez's two younger sons also played baseball and often chatted with members of the Mosley and French families in attendance to watch Hunter in the bleachers. After the news came out that her son murdered Anne French Fossette's son, Elaine said, my heart goes out to them and commented on how hard this must be for the family. But that wasn't all. This was not a case where Alvarez for some reason targeted the French home that night, perhaps to rob the family he probably perceived as affluent. The truth was much, much weirder. 
It turned out that Alvarez was obsessed with the Frenches and their home. We don't know exactly when he first entered the house. It started when Whitley was at the Alvarez home where he lived, and she inadvertently left her driver's license behind. Alvarez noted her address, and he found a spare key the Frenches had hidden outside the house, because as a professional landscaper, he knew exactly where people typically hid their keys. Note to self, don't hide the key under the mat or a flower pot. Alvarez stole the key and copied it, replacing the original so no one would know. And while the family was sleeping on many, many occasions over the six-month period leading up to the slayings, he would let himself into their home and silently revel in the comforts the house had to offer. Sometimes he entered when he knew no one was home, and sometimes he let himself in when he knew the residents were home. He crept in and actually watched the family sleep. He would dare himself to spend five minutes, ten minutes longer in the house. And this is really odd. He smelled things. This from the statements in court. He was fixated on smells, defense attorney Vincent Rabel said. Quote, the French house was a model home. Everything was new and freshly painted. And this is the weirdest of all. Alvarez really enjoyed the smell of the French's clothes dryer. I'm going to have to find out what kind of model they have. On one of Alvarez's clandestine excursions into the house, he stole Troy's gun. He had it with him on the night of the shooting for self-protection, he said. Of course, this illustrates that Alvarez was fully aware that what he was doing was wrong, illegal, and potentially could cause a confrontation. And it did. We learned from the courtroom statements that Alvarez didn't plan the murders. He didn't dislike or have any animosity toward the Frenches. In fact, as we now know, he seemed fixated on them instead. And on the night of the murders, just as in many nights previously, he entered the home knowing the Frenches were home. We know that Whitley was awake around 1.30 a.m. Remember, she was on her phone at that time. Alvarez entered her room just after 2. And when he did, he stepped on a floorboard that creaked. Whitley, probably just lightly asleep at that point, turned to see what the noise was, and in the dim light, she could see only the hooded figure frozen in place near her bed. And she did what any of us would do. She screamed. She pulled the sheet over her head and screamed and screamed. Her shrieks pierced the silent, peaceful night and woke up her parents downstairs. Panicked, Alvarez jumped on top of Whitley to shut her up and hit her arm with the knife he was holding, cutting her. When he heard Troy and LaDonna start to run, he jumped off Whitley and ran to the stairs to escape. But LaDonna was already at the base of the staircase, between him and the door. Alvarez fumbled to stow the knife, cutting himself in the process, and grabbed the gun. He fired, mowing down the parents, simply reacting to being caught red-handed and desperate to get out of the house. Blitzer said in court that, quote, The motive in the murders was just escape from that house. It was not about an attraction to Whitley. After shoving LaDonna's body aside and unlocking the front door, Alvarez ran to his car parked on a dirt road that was somewhat hidden from view and drove off. He wasn't dumb. He immediately ditched the knife, gun, and bloody clothing he was wearing that night in a dumpster near his home. They were never recovered. This was why there was no sign of a break-in at the French home, and the killer had known that the front door was locked. He had a key and was all too familiar with the nocturnal locking-up habits of the unsuspecting family. District Attorney Blitzer held a press conference after the sentencing. He emphasized the complexity of this case, with 324 pieces of evidence, 65 buckle swabs, and four DNA labs. The total cost of $5,000, most of which went to Parabon, was footed with funds seized from criminal enterprises. 
Blitzer said that the shell casings found at the scene, being matched to the gun stolen from the house months earlier, focused their investigation close to home. But the elimination of everyone who had known access to the house stymied the investigators. Without the snapshot component, the case might have gone unsolved. Blitzer shed some more light on the homicides, the strange convicted young man, and the motivations that drove him to seek out the French home. When Alvarez saw the address on Whitley's license in the summer of 2011, he went to the house out of curiosity. He quickly found the hidden key and sneaked into the residence. Inside, Alvarez became enamored by the newness, the organization, and the cleanliness of the home. He told investigators, quote, he was entranced by the nice things that Troy, LaDonna, Whitley, and Hunter had. Over the next seven months, he sneaked into the house on numerous occasions. Sometimes he had been drinking. He was infatuated with the residents and their possessions. Blitzer described the double homicide as a simple crime of opportunity. Alvarez had no special feelings about Whitley. In fact, he had often entered the home when she was away at college. Alvarez's motive that night was simply to escape from the house. Blitzer stated that the BAU had posited from the intruder's transition from knife to gun that he was cornered and desperate to escape. Whitley was left alive simply because she was not standing between the killer and the exit, the front door. As we know, the key found under the deck was used by Alvarez to make a copy, but he replaced it and never used it again. The unknown male DNA profile on the key, which did not match the profile from the blood drops, did not come from mishandling by the RCSO, Blitzer said. Rather, the touch DNA is believed to have come from whatever hardware store clerk copied the key. As for why Alvarez locked the door behind him while he clandestinely walked around the house, he told investigators he always locked the deadbolt on the way in in case the family woke up and checked the door. Now, there may be those of you who wonder, or perhaps even suspect, that Alvarez was the fall guy, that maybe Whitley and his brother participated behind the scenes, and that they used him to eliminate the French's, the perceived obstacle to their happiness. It seems convenient that Whitley couldn't identify the shooter, that Hunter wasn't home, and she wasn't really injured. I can't assuage your doubts, and I do believe that a lingering suspicion of John Alvarez is what led investigators to order the partial DNA match testing. But I can tell you that at the sentencing, both District Attorney Craig Blitzer and Alvarez's own defense attorney, Vincent Rabel, told the court that Alvarez acted alone. Rabel is a very well-known and effective defense lawyer. If his client could lessen his own culpability by placing the blame on some co-conspirators, Rabel would absolutely go for it. Why would Alvarez keep silent and take the fall for Whitley and John? The answer is he wouldn't. At the press conference, Blitzer took care to state affirmatively that the French case is closed. There is no evidence of any additional suspects, and authorities announced a complete and total exoneration of Whitley. Blitzer reprimanded the media and the public for pointing the finger at Whitley. He said that in her time of need, she was abandoned by the community and eventually driven out of state. She and John had moved to Texas after they graduated from ECU. Blitzer angrily cited a reporter who circumvented restrictions on communications with Alvarez and sent him a secret letter in prison, saying that she did not believe him to be guilty and offering to tell his side of the story. On the contrary, Blitzer said, Alvarez voluntarily gave a DNA sample, confessed his deeds as part of the plea agreement, and took sole responsibility for his crimes. Sheriff Page, a vehement supporter of Whitley's and John's innocence from the beginning, 
stated bluntly that there is zero basis to believe that anyone but Alvarez was involved. After just four years, the French case was closed thanks to partial DNA matching and DNA phenotyping. And if you're one of the bad guys, they're coming for you. Don't forget, if you're interested in becoming a regular supporter of the show, you can join Patreon to become a DNA ID patron and receive episodes ad-free. Just go to patreon.com and search for DNA ID. And if you're interested in some fun DNA ID merch, visit customizedgirl.com slash s slash DNA ID podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of DNA ID. To contact the show, please email us at DNA ID podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on social media at DNA ID podcast on Instagram at DNA ID podcast on Twitter and at DNA ID podcast on Facebook. Use the Spreaker app if you'd like to comment on episodes of DNA ID, and I'll be able to see your comments and reply to them. DNA ID is written, researched, and hosted by me, Jessica Betancourt. It's produced by me and Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Music by Connor Betancourt. Check out our other collaborative podcasts, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, and Beyond Bizarre True Crime. Hi, I'm Celeste. Hi, I'm Richard. Hey, I'm Christy. And I'm Tally. We're the hosts of Unethical Podcast. Every episode, we take a humorous dive into a case study that poses an ethical question. Like, should mentally ill murderers ever be released? No. We discuss what the outcomes of these cases are and what they should be with a unique guest host every episode. Richard needs some more testosterone around here. Nah, I think it's mostly coming from Celeste. Girls are mean. Our podcast is no holds barred, true crime, comedy, adult content, and definitely not for everybody. But, but like most people, most people aren't like can handle swear words and stuff, right? Am I right about that? No. No. You can subscribe wherever you eat your podcasts to listen. Follow us on Instagram where we post our teasers to guess what's coming next. And join us on Facebook to get involved in the conversation. Welcome to Unethical Podcast.